Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And this was the first time that people were striving to build a government with freedom as a foundational ideal. That gave average people hope. And that was worth everything. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chris Yawn discussing the big runaway on the west branch of Pennsylvania's Susquehanna River. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chris Yawn, and he'll be discussing the event called the Big Runaway on the West Branch of the Susquehanna River. Now I do have to admit, I am a Pennsylvania man like Chris. I am well versed in the story of the Big Runaway, as we'll see tonight. But what I found is not a lot of you are as versed in it as you should be. So I would encourage anyone to, of course, listen to Chris's interview, but read his wonderful article at www.allthingsliberty.com. This is a very interesting story. It's a story not of armies uh, and campaigns, but it is a story of battle and survival of regular people in a very irregular time. Uh, It's a war of partisan uh, raids. It's a war of uh, flight and captivity from British allied Indian peoples. It's a harrowing part of the American Revolution. I think most people are pretty unfamiliar with. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Chris Yon. Chris Yon, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Tell us about your background. Well, um, I grew up on the West Branch of the Susquehanna, uh, where this article is based. And um, I, uh, from, from being born there through high school, uh, I lived there and grew up. And uh, so obviously had some interest in a lot of the topics uh, that took place there. I went, earn, I went on to uh, earn a Master of Fine Arts degree in acting. Uh, and after that, my wife and I moved to New York, uh, where I spent most of the next 10 years doing daytime television. Uh, we left the city with a Broadway national tour. And uh, after that, it was time to settle down and have kids. So I went to work for a Fortune 50 logistics company where I'm currently a communications manager. Uh, I lead a team that serves two global business units. And uh, I'm also currently the president of the Richmond chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I'll tell you, it's, as I said, there's some fascinating history uh, where I grew up. And it's always been interesting to me. And uh, it's it's been a long time interest and... um, so I thought, you know, we have the 250th uh, anniversary of the revolution coming up and kind of rekindled some of my 
interest and imagination, and I went back, and uh, I had known about The Big Runaway, but I really kind of wanted to take an in-depth look, and um, so it seemed like the right time to go back and, and take a look at it. Um, I've always been a, a, a history fan. Uh, I've loved history my whole life. When I was young, we would go on day trips, whether it was the local county museum or or to the northern tier, to the lumber museum, or Gettysburg was a really popular day trip. Um, as I got older, we would find ourselves in Washington's Crossing or Valley Forge, Brandywine, Princeton, and that sort of really kindled the whole Revolutionary War uh, interest in me. And um, and then just just around the valley uh, on the West Branch, there are <laughs> there's indications that there's a great story there, and uh, there's roadside markers that point out like this is where there was a fort, or here's where an attack took place. Um, there are places without signs, but you see in in a field there's a, a settler cemetery in the corner of the field. There'll be a wall and and tombstones. Uh, in the center, and it's a family that had been massacred or, or killed during a raid. Um, and then, of course, there's Fort Augusta, and that was also a popular destination for my family and I, and uh, kind of just, you knew there was more out there. So it uh, it was something that was very interesting to me for a long, long time. I'm a Pennsylvania man, Chris. You're a Pennsylvania man. Um Tell everyone else uh, a little bit about the West Branch Valley. Uh, what was life like there? Well, I'll tell you, um, both now and when I was growing up, it's it's pretty idyllic. It's some gorgeous country, a beautiful river valley, uh, and it's right there in the foothills of the Appalachians. So you have um, you have rolling hills, you have mountains uh, that um, that they they probably get up to twenty five hundred feet. I think think uh, they're not huge towering mountains they're they're ancient uh but just gorgeous and um i learned to swim in the river when i was a kid and i spent a lot of time in the river uh growing up uh, tubing and canoeing also spent a lot of time up in the hills uh walking around hiking going to state parks uh and and i grew up in a small town and so it was a, a typical small town upbringing very uh rockwell-esque i would say um, during the Revolution, this was truly the frontier. It was the very edge of um, – it was the western frontier at the time. Uh, it was part of the larger 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanwix that took place between the British and the Iroquois. And as part of that settlement, it settled the land claims uh, between the Iroquois and the Pens. So uh, this was very newly available land at the time of the revolution. Um, and as I said, the valley was fertile, uh, fertile river bottom, very desirable for settlement. And, and it just, you know, became available for people to move in and, and begin settling down. Um, but it's got that wild uh, side all around it with the mountains and the hills. Uh, and at that time would have been extremely remote uh, from most of the rest of the state. What was the primary threat to settlers of that region? So, the the real primary threat is is just basic survival, but uh, you hit on it. The causes are many. One is militarily. Um, it's not you're not having uh, large British armies uh, marching up and down the valley, but you do have uh, almost continual raids, um, both both by the Iroquois and by the loyalists. Um, now, as we all know in the Revolution, loyalists 
you know, you're, it could be your next door neighbor, it could be the next town over. Those folks are typically not raiding, uh, although in some cases uh, they surely did. But um, this is more um, the Iroquois were based up in New York State, and uh, the native paths led down the various streams and, and valleys uh, straight down into the Susquehanna, both on the north and west branches. Um, so those those raids occurred frequently, and and they were typically um, smaller scale, uh, smaller groups, but much more frequent. There might be 30, 40 uh, people raiding, uh, as opposed to when the Loyalist raids occurred. And the Loyalists were also, their main base of operations was at Fort Niagara, uh, up in the western part of the southern part of New York State. And um, they would work in concert with the Iroquois, uh, but lots of times they would they would have organized groups, regiments of loyalists and so forth, and and bring along large numbers of of natives with them in a concerted more from a British perspective, a more strategic stroke, uh, rather than just the the constant uh, smaller raids. This these would be the master strokes that they would come down. Um so that, for instance, would have been like the Wyoming massacre that took place on the North Branch mentioned in this article. So those those would really be the larger raids. But aside from the military side of things, just basic subsistence. Um, with, with many of the militia off fighting with Washington, uh, there was a lack of manpower to get the fields planted and, and harvested and so forth. Um, and then just there was a danger to go out and plant, depending on what year it was, what time, what was going on in the war. Uh, there were times people, people had to stay pretty much in those localized forts and could not get out. It was dangerous just to go out outside. Um, so there were times they did not plant at all. So food became a problem. Um, and at the same time, they're, they're doing their best to supply the army. They're being asked, hey, send us, send us supplies, send us things. And uh, so that further depletes any kind of stored grain they would have had and so forth. And then the supplies, the same thing, salt, powder, arms, ammunition. Um, things are scarce. And this is such a remote area uh, that, you know, the supply chain getting out there, it's not, it's not a superhighway. And, and as in almost any organization, the need is always going to seem greater at the center of action. Right, so certainly the Continental Army is going to come first in supplies, and and we know they weren't even all that greatly supplied most of the time. Um, and then the counties that are in closer to Philadelphia and down around the more populous areas of the state certainly would have been more readily supplied than way out on the frontier. Tell us about Fort Augusta. Well, I'll I'll do a I'll do a current and then. Uh, answer on that as well. Fort Augusta is a neat place to visit. It's um, today and for many decades past the headquarters of the Northumberland County Historical Society. Uh, they do a fantastic job interpreting the site. Uh, there's a very nice little museum there uh, with some artifacts and interpretation, uh, and they have a research center. Uh, and then outside in the front lawn is a huge scale replica of the fort. Um, and it's when I say huge, it's the the 
buildings like the barracks and so forth from inside the fort are almost as tall as a person. And you can't walk around inside it, but if I mean, you could walk through it if it were permissible. It's it's really impressive to see, and they have platforms sort of built around it where you can go and look down and, and almost get that uh, time-traveling effect, uh, looking down into Fort Augusta, uh, very accurately uh, depicted. So that's a, it's a pretty cool visit. Um, it was built, uh, to, to take it back to the, uh, the time of the war, the, the fort had been built in 1756 during the French and Indian War, and it truly was the key to defense to both the north and west branches. It sits at the confluence of, this, of, the, of both branches where they come together at Sunbury and then flow on down to the Chesapeake. Um, the, the fort itself was a timber star fort, uh, traditionally built uh, and designed, but it was no small thing. Uh, this was an elaborate military defense with a dry moat, a drawbridge, uh, had bastions, artillery emplacements, there was an elevated firing wall, and then from the fort itself were connected uh, stockade walls with guard towers leading to the river on either side. So it was an extremely well-designed uh, defensible position right there at the confluence of the Susquehanna. Inside, uh, of course, the parade ground, uh, and then around the four sides of the parade ground, there were barracks, um, officers' quarters. There was the colonel's home, and uh, there, of course, was a powder magazine and a well, both of which still exist today. So the well is uh, out in the corner, up toward up toward the road as people are driving by, and uh, the powder magazine is um, back off. It kind of gives you a really good because the well was in one of the one of the points of the star. And then the powder magazine directly opposite, so it gives you a real sense of the scale of what that fort was when you're when you're seeing those two landmarks that still exist. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty neat place. You write in your article that things became dire in 1778. Uh, tell us what you meant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so much of the 12th Pennsylvania Regiment was made up of Northumberland County militia. Uh, and, and at that time, I say Northumberland County, um, if you look at a map today, you don't get a sense of what Northumberland County was. It was really the current county plus almost all of north central Pennsylvania, including like Cummings, Center, Sullivan. I mean, it just went on and on pretty much all the way to the state line uh, in the north. And uh, um, so it was that many people, but that was rugged sparse country. Most, most of the people uh, lived pretty much within the West Branch. So they were away with the Army. And um, this, is, this is during the time of the spring of 78. We're still at Valley Forge, uh, on to the Battle of Monmouth and so forth. And uh, as Colonel Hunter noted uh, in March, the supplies and arms were critically, critically low. Uh, he refers to having two rifles and six muskets in the public stores, which uh, if, if you have a raid on the way or, or the threat of a raid, I can't even imagine that that's, that's what you have at, at your availability. Uh, that would have been a little haunting. And then that, 1778, was one of those springs that no one planted. 
they could not afford to leave the forts. Uh, it was just too dangerous. There, the, the food and the supplies were scarce, and the raids were increasing in frequency and in severity. So things really, really were becoming dire. Chris, who are the major players in the region, uh, people's names we should know? So first and foremost, I would have to say Colonel Samuel Hunter. He was uh, the military leader of Northumberland County. So if you go back, uh, we were just talking a second ago about uh, the size and scope of Northumberland County. Uh, just vast amounts of land. And, and this man was responsible uh, to protect it, uh, all from the base there at Fort Augusta. And um, so he was, he was the person, uh, sort of the touch point to the officials in the state of Pennsylvania. He was the one corresponding with the State Committee of Safety, um, and, and he was calling the shots pretty much uh, militarily. For, for all the militia, all the, you know, what was going on. And then he commanded, of course, the troops at Fort Augusta. Now, later in the war, other officers would come in, uh, continental officers and so forth, and he would defer uh, command. Certainly he didn't have command over their regiments, but they would work in concert. And um, so that was kind of the dynamic there. Um, Colonel William Hepburn was in command it, pretty much, if you look at a map and you see where the where the West Branch bends around the end of Bald Eagle Mountain, um, right in that sort of 180 degree turn, there was um, it still exists actually. It's it's a private home, but it's it's the home of Samuel Wallace, and he was a uh, a prominent rich uh, surveyor in the area. He bought up a lot of the West Branch Valley. Uh, and he was also a merchant in Philadelphia. So he built this large um, home and plantation there at the at the edge of Bald Eagle Mountain across the river. And um, that's where that home itself was not fortified, but it was kind of a, a regular gathering spot for settlers in times of danger. And and the militia would kind of camp there. It was a it was a central location where people would come together for safety. So Colonel Hepburn was in charge of the militia there at Wallace's, and um, when he received Hunter's order to evacuate the valley, he was in charge of organizing that evacuation. And then um, we get, of course, through in the article, it, it talks about uh, evacuating Antes Fort, which is near the present-day Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. Uh, Colonel John Henry Antis um, was a militia colonel. Uh, he was a justice of the peace. And his mill, he um, earlier, uh, the year before, he stockaded the mill to become a fort. And um, he was in charge of the militia there. Uh, but this is like another 25 miles upriver from Wallace's. So um, this is, if if the West Branch is the very edge of the frontier, he is like, you know, he's he's on the border. He's he's kind of right there. It's about as far out at that time as you could get. Um, and then just an interesting side uh, comment on him. Prior to the revolution, there were competing claims between the Pens and the settlers of Connecticut, uh, both of which had been granted large swaths of land across 
northern Pennsylvania. Basically, if you extend the northern and southern borders of Connecticut westward, um, it runs right across the top of Pennsylvania, and the, the Connecticut claim had no real western boundary. So they claimed a lot of Pennsylvania. In fact, uh, parts of Ohio today are known as the Western Reserve. It's the Western Reserve of Connecticut is what that refers to. So there became, prior to the revolution, the Yankee-Penamite War. And uh, Colonel John Henry Antis actually participated in a raid uh, on the Connecticut settlers in the Wyoming Valley pre-revolution. So when the revolution started, suddenly, you know, there was a larger enemy and, and everybody kind of came together and faced them. So, but that, that it was a, a small skirmish. Uh, there were not many injuries uh, from what I've read. Uh, and then it was handled diplomatically after the war to finally put that all to bed. But, uh, but he participated in that pre-revolutionary war raid. And I guess the, the last person I would mention uh, that's talked about in the article is Robert Kovenhoven. He's a lesser-known uh, person, uh, but he was a guide, a soldier. And what's not mentioned in the article, but his brother was killed in a raid just days before this all takes place. And um, as mentioned, you know, the, the raids are coming quickly and frequently and, and with much severity, and his brother was one of the victims. And when they received word, hey, we have to evacuate the valley, um, they needed someone to get from Wallace's to go that extra 25 miles upriver and warn the people at Annie's Fort. And Robert, Robert Kovenhoven stepped up, took that responsibility, volunteered to make that trip and, um, and bring those people to safety to, to warn them that they needed to leave. And when you look at the terrain, if you, you just look at a map, a topographical map, what have you, his feat was amazing. Him and this um, unnamed millwright who volunteered to join him, the two of them crossed the river at Wallace's, ascended to the top of Bald Eagle Mountain, and then crossed the top of the mountain all the way until they dropped down into Annie's Fork. Now, the trick with that is there's numerous ravines and valleys and, and, and stream beds along the way. And this would have been untouched territory, untouched vegetation. It, it would have been very wild, very rugged. Even, even in modern times, just to hike straight up over the mountain is, is a really hard task and uh, very, very exhausting. And the fact that these two people did this crossing a river and, and, and heading up the mountain and going all that way in a day, 25 miles of it is just phenomenal. It, it's really a testament uh, to these men's fortitude and, and um, sense of duty that they went and warned these people and got them away safely. Let's get to the heart of the article, the big runaway. Talk about the decision to evacuate. Yeah. Um, so talking about the Wyoming massacre. So, Hunter, if you can picture sitting at Fort Augusta, he knows things are tenuous, things are dire. Uh, he's already writing away uh, to, the, to the State Committee of Safety, asking for more supplies. Things aren't good. And then he gets word that 
uh, up in the Wyoming Valley. Uh, they have proper fortifications up there. Uh, there's about 300 patriots and and and, uh, and their families and so forth. And they're attacked by one of these more masterstroke type raids. Uh, it's it's loyalists and natives. Uh, more than 500 uh, attack that settlement and pretty much just wipe them out. Um, those who they capture are killed. Uh, the families, uh, most of them, the, the women and children did end up finally getting away, but, but it completely decimated the defense on the North Branch. So you can pretty much erase half the map. And Hunter doesn't know what's coming, right? So, so first, thinking of the people on the West Branch, they're even more exposed, and they don't have the the uh, sophisticated defenses that they did on the North Branch. They don't have nearly as many people, and and or or the uh, the fort infrastructure, so forth. So he's thinking, what are we going to do? Because he doesn't know is there another equal rating force coming down on the West Branch? Is the force that just had a victory on the North Branch going to go to the West Branch, or are they going to come to Fort Augusta? So there was a lot of things to consider here. And really, militarily, it made the most sense to consolidate what power was available at Fort Augusta. It is such a robust, strong, defensible place that it was, one, the safest place for those West Branch settlers to consolidate. And secondly, any militia or 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 supplies or material or whatever they had would only benefit the defense of Fort Augusta itself. So on a lot of levels, that was really about the only decision I think Hunter could have made. Um, and so that's what sort of set the entire evacuation in motion. How did the rest of the war play out in that region? Yeah, so after the big runaway... Um, the article kind of ends talking about many of those who evacuated, they they stayed the night at Fort Augusta and they kept right on going. They they were done. They, they wanted no part of hanging around, hoping to, to defend something. They had relatives in the southern part of the state or in, you know, other counties. Uh, so Hunter and some of the leaders at the time, they they were really trying to get people to stay. And you know, if, if Fort Augusta fell, that would have been a huge void in the defense of the entire state, because then you're down to Lancaster County, Berks County, um, you're, you're headed right down to Philadelphia. And if you think about, you know, if Washington um, and the Continental Army is in eastern Pennsylvania, western New Jersey, in that range, you, not only are you facing a British Army on your front, but if the interior of the state collapses, you have loyalist and NATO armies approaching from the back. You're you're gonna you're gonna in essence be surrounded, and uh, this this would have been devastating. And so they really needed to save Fort Augusta and preserve the valleys, and and keep that first line of defense uh, for the continental cause. So. Um, after the big runaway, reinforcements did show up. There were enough people that stayed 
Uh, and, and Hunter talks about in Sunbury and Northumberland, which is the town right across the river from Sunbury. Uh, that was the frontier at the time. It, it came right up to the doorstep of Fort Augusta. Uh, those people stayed, and there were enough uh, militia soldiers and people who had evacuated to stay in Fort Augusta that, that they were not attacked. Uh, and then reinforcements started to come. There were some of the neighboring counties that Hunter had appealed to that sent militia. They were some of the first to arrive. Then there was a regiment uh, marching on its way from the east to the western part of the state. Um, they, were, they were going to a place called Standing Stone and then on out to Fort Pitt and so forth. And um, they stopped. They were on their way up the Juniata Valley, and they received orders to stop and turn around, and they went back to Fort Augusta and shored up those defenses until more permanent arrangements could be made. And so that really, between the militia and this, this Continental Regiment, that really solidified things and, and kind of took the immediate danger away. Then a regiment under Colonel Thomas Hartley arrived. He had been down in Philadelphia uh, in, in that area. And um, they arrived, and after getting there, they went on the offensive. They actually... They actually went and built a, a smaller scale but proper fort up near Wallace's. It was called Fort Muncie, and that's that's just north of present-day uh, Muncie, Pennsylvania. Um, so they built the fort. They reestablished a, a, a chain of defense uh, between the north and the west branches, and then he went on the offensive. He he raided uh, Hartley, raided as far north as Tioga on the north branch. And and probably would have gone further. The the real uh, center of power uh, for the Iroquois at that time um, on on the North Branch was a place called Chimung. It's present day Elmira. But they got as far as Tioga and um, and uh, basically burned some villages and so forth up there. But then they got word that the enemy had been warned that they were on their way, and so. Hartley thought better of going into the enemy's stronghold, knowing that they know he's on the way, and he cut his losses, um, was happy with the results he got, and he headed back to Fort Augusta. So that actually had a, a good effect. It, it sort of staved off the raids, the incoming raids, uh, for a while, gave a little respite to the settlers. Uh, people started coming back, reoccupying their homes and farms, uh, and then based on that uh, example, the following year, uh, Washington determined he was going to protect the frontier more by launching a larger, very organized raid into the Iroquois country. And this was under General John Sullivan. A lot of times it's referred to as Sullivan's expedition. And uh, in all this, uh, people from the valley are, are part of it. Um, they participate. They go along. It's militia. It's, it's m most of the militia there are, were riflemen, so they acted as scouts and um, and would be out sort of in the fringes of the regular Continental troops. Um, so Sullivan's army raided from Chimung, um, again modern day Elmira, across the southern tier of New York State, and it was really devastating effect on the Iroquois. The, they wiped out. A lot of villages kind of turned the tables on what was happening to the Pennsylvania settlers uh, and just 
basically took away their ability to continue to raid uh, on a large scale. Um, Fort Augusta, for that raid, in the, in the whole planning and everything, Fort Augusta was designated the supply depot. Basically, they would send things to Fort Augusta, and they, they enlisted men for what they called the boat service. They built bateaus, and they would get the supplies that came to Fort Augusta, and then they would pull these bateaus uh, up the North Branch to the Wyoming Valley, where they were then used um, for the raid. Um, so that said, uh, you know, it, it did have a devastating effect. It really did sort of protect the frontier. But smaller raids continued all the way through the war, well, well into 1782. Um, there was never a time it was just perfectly safe to, to be out wandering around. And, and there's numerous accounts of people who would go out to milk their cow and, and either be killed or taken captive. Um, so that it really wasn't until the end of the war that that completely and totally ceased. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, thank you, thank you for asking that, actually. Um, I think it sheds light in a lot of different ways. Um, when we think of the revolution, we often picture great battles and vast armies, all of which is true. But the American Revolution was very much everyone's fight. And I think this article illustrates how much that's really true. While many locals were off fighting in the army and participating in those battles and the hardships that we all know very well, their families were still back on the frontier, struggling to defend themselves, feed themselves, raise their families, and, and supply the army at the same time. Um, the militia that was left on the frontier performed as much true military duties as their numbers and their supplies would allow. They patrolled the paths, they built defenses and fended off raids, but the women and children were also often combatants. Um, as I said a few times, you know, just stepping outside to milk a cow was a really dangerous undertaking. And um, there were many, many settlers who were killed in just doing those normal day-to-day -day activities. And then when your home or, or the fort you were staying in was attacked, everyone who could fight did. And that's whether you're, you're actually firing at the enemy or loading a rifle or making more ammunition – Many women and children were killed in these raids, and many others were captured and taken away with the Iroquois. So when you think about this, why, why was this worth it to them? And when you put it in a larger context, the, the people who came to America often came because they didn't have opportunities in, in their land of their upbringing. And the idea of a government based on freedom and self-determination, it was a new concept in the history of the world. I mean, the Greeks had some semblance of democracy, so the Vikings, but there was always a ruler with a final say. Even in societies that codified rights, like the Magna Carta, you know, you still had a monarch, and, and even in later times... Uh, there's societal strata that kept people from moving ahead. A lot just depended on your last name or, or where you'd been born. And this was the first time that people were striving to build a government with freedom as a foundational ideal. Um, 
that gave average people hope. And that was worth everything. So while we've struggled maybe with realizing the true spirit of that foundational ideal over the past 250 years, we're constantly moving toward it. Century by century, decade by decade, we get closer to that original idea of equality and freedom for every single person. And that original ideal is what they fought for then. And that original ideal is what makes us great today. Chris Yon, thanks again. Thank you very much, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>